Welcome to Discipline Win, a podcast on how to win in discipline both within ourselves and when helping others. Join me, Dr. Andy Jacks, as I dive into some of the most challenging issues in school improvement, specifically how we can help our most struggling students find their path to progress and give every single one of them a chance at their own success. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to like, share, and comment on social media with me at underscore Andy Jacks to help us continue to grow together. Welcome back to Discipline Win. I am really excited to bring to you an interview with an educator I admire so very much, Alfie Cohn, the Alfie Cohn. He's an award-winning and highly regarded American author and speaker in the areas of education, parenting, and human behavior. He is a proponent of progressive education he calls radical and has offered critiques of many of the traditional aspects of learning, discipline, and control in schools. Alfie challenges the widely accepted theories and practices such as the use of competition, incentive programs, conventional discipline, standardized testing, grades, homework, and of course traditional schooling. He has been very influential in my work. He has published 14 books. Two of his books on school discipline are absolutely profound. One is Punished by Rewards, The Trouble with Gold Stars, Incentive Plans, A's, Praise, and Other Bribes. And the other one is Beyond Discipline. From Compliance to Community, and that's one that we'll talk about a lot in this episode. Both of those books are in the description for this podcast, so you can check them out. You can connect with Alfie on social media, at Alfie Cohn, and learn more on his website, www.alfiecohn.org. Make sure to follow him on Twitter, because he is regularly posting his ideas and his challenges to the status quo. So let's get right to it. Put on your thinking cap, and let's go. On his description out there it says that he is a you know award-winning lecturer researcher speaker uh, but I look at him as a rogue and maverick and unconventional intelligent informed and uh, how would you Mr. Cohn Alfie Cohn how would you describe yourself well I write books and give talks about a range of topics having to do with education and human behavior, so I'll just leave it at that description and let other people attach what adjectives to the way I do that they choose to. Great. That's very humble, and I appreciate that. I will definitely do it for you because the work you have done has been very influential for me and in my in, as a school leader and an educator and working with kids, and they're really rethinking the practices that I think are so common and standard in education. And we're going to talk about a, three or four of those today in this podcast. And starting right away, let's hit this one straight out, uh, is the f- idea of failure. There is these traditional concepts and ideas that are just ingrained, and unfortunately there's new ones that become ingrained, like this one right here. And in 2016, you wrote the, a powerful article called uh, The Failure of Failure, it's a challenge to the new love of failure, this failure myth. Uh, I feel like it's a cop-out by educators many times. Uh, similar to this idea of pushing for grit and that you know, we should in- embrace this sort of struggle and, and failing mindset. You wrote that the question is how likely it is that failure will be productive. And the answer is not very. The benefits of screwing up are widely overrated. What's most reliably associated with successful outcomes, it turns out, are prior experiences with success, not with failure. While there are exceptions, the most likely consequence of having failed at something is that children will come to see themselves as lacking competence. I absolutely love this counter-argument to the failing and that we, I think we have an epidemic in education in this area. It's a total cop-out, I think, when things don't work out with our students. We just throw our hands up as if failing is good for them. But the reality is much different. People that fail end up really, I think, quitting, not persevering. 
And our kids that fail in school do the same. They drop out, they give up, they don't really push through. And the kids that are pushing through that we think is failing, it's not really failing, that's really more of struggling. What are your thoughts on this sort of failure myth and how it's influencing educators and school leaders? Well, uh, the quotation from my article summarizes my view of this based on the research, and I agree with what you've said as well. Um, to some extent, of course, failure is inevitable, but the question is whether we kind of uh, overvalue it or uh, talk about it as if it has magical properties and it represents one of many aspects in which a deeply social conservative ideology uh, has made a resurgence and has been embraced even by people who politically don't think of themselves as conservatives. And I wrote about this topic and related issues in which people who, who seem progressive on on many political issues suddenly sound like they're on Fox News when the topic turns to education or parenting. I wrote about this in a book called The Myth of the Spoiled Child. Um, what the research shows is that uh, there's a, a bunch of studies that basically did a variation of giving kids, some kids, a task that was impossible to succeed at, although the kids didn't know that, and then later uh, gave them and other kids a, a task that was possible to succeed at. But those who had failed uh, because they didn't have a choice earlier now thought of themselves as unable to do even a very different kind of task and were less likely to succeed at the newer, easier task than kids who didn't fail before. So the idea that you know, you skin your knee and you, you, you know, you develop, you get tough as a result and you pick yourself up and you dust yourself off and say, by golly, I'm going to persist at this and be good at it next time is, is uh, to say the least, unrealistic. Although we should make distinctions because some forms of failure are more destructive than others. So if you really wanted to screw kids up, they you wouldn't just arrange for them to fail. You would make their failure public at a task where everybody else is watching. You would evaluate them conspicuously with grades or something. Mm -hmm. And the worst of all is you would set it up so they didn't just fail, they lost, mm -hmm. which is to say they failed at a task that was set up competitively so that some people had to lose to fail in order that others could succeed. Any time you pit kids against each other in a kind of race or contest, you underscore the destructive effects of failure, and you end up undermining in various ways uh, even those who have succeeded, because now they've succeeded at someone else's expense. Yeah, very powerful statement right there. There's, there's these these sort of side effects that happen when we think about this failure model. You know, for me, I just, I just keep coming back to educators in some ways are, are very much first responders. We're on the scene in order to prevent that total failure and that we should be doing everything in our power to, you know, maybe look at that struggle component so that they're being challenged and that there's some level of growth from that. But ultimately, we're building from where they are and growing from there and not just letting them fail and, 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 and like you said, feel that failure. 
and feel that, you know, because I'm not successful, it just, I might as well quit and give up because that's, that's sort of what we're asking them to do. Like either, either figure it out or, or not is sort of like this sort of choice, I guess, um, that shouldn't even be there. You know, I, when I work with students, I keep thinking is, you know, I'm, I'm, we're going to help you either way. We're going to get through this. Um, so it's not really an option to fail per se. It's just that we're going to keep learning and keep growing from there. And the other important question is when we, is failing or succeeding at what? Is it worth doing? People who make a fetish of grit and determination and uh, self-regulation and uh, self-control, self-discipline, all that kind of stuff, or a growth mindset, whenever you talk about these ideas, you're saying the problem is with the kid. We have to fix the kid's attitude or orientation or mindset and rather than looking at the systemic issues also whenever you talk about how you know failure is is good for kids if they have the right mindset you, you know uh, the ob- this is very convenient for us as the adults because then we don't have to ask whether the task was worth doing at all in the first place you know if you give a kid a a worksheet <laughs> You, you know, the, the, the ideal response is not for a kid to say, by golly, with enough determination, I'll bet I could succeed at this. <laughs> right. The correct response is, why does anybody have to do this crap? Right. The problem is with the curriculum, not with the attitude of the kids. And the more you focus on, you know, the ideal balance of mindsets or, or attitudes toward, toward failure, the less likely you are to take a step back and ask, you know, does this raise deep questions that are worth asking? And did the kids have anything to do with deciding on the task? Because if the, if the kids are excluded from decision-making and merely made to do whatever they're told by people who have more power, then you're missing the point in a way that's just a little too convenient for us by focusing on the whole failure question in the first place. I couldn't agree more. I mean, and, and you discussed the importance of this book, Beyond Discipline, from Compliance to Community. There's a line directly from that you're talking about. The problem always rests with a child who doesn't do what is, he has asked, never with what he has been asked to do. And like you said, looking at that task and making sense of it, because many of our classrooms are dreadful places, frankly. You know, they're places that as adults, we wouldn't want to sit in every single day. They're not necessarily the most engaging places. And the kids don't find the work very meaningful or relevant to their lives. And frankly, some of the objectives that we have are not very meaningful and relevant to their lives. As adults, we can look back plenty of times and look back at these learning experiences and think, I really didn't need that. You know, we ask those questions, will I need this as an adult? And they're like, yes, you will. No, no, we won't for the most part. There are some things that we need that, and some things we don't. And there's some obvious things that kids need as adults that we don't teach them in school. So if kids find what you're doing irrelevant, well, then you're going to have misbehavior sort of naturally occur, right? Sure. I, I mean, I, I, when I was a teacher, I had... I, I saw that all the time. You know, kids often act out because it's a way to make the time pass faster. <laughs> I can't blame them. Right. You know, uh, the, if, if kids are off task, our first responsibility is to ask, what's the task? You know, if it's about, you know, cramming forgettable facts into short-term memory into, so that they do better on a test or get a better grade, that isn't even the beginning of a justification for making kids do that. Now, sometimes... Teachers are not at fault here 
because administrators and and distant authorities have imposed on them a one-size-fits-all, top-down, test-driven curriculum that's really just about memorizing facts and practicing a series of isolated skills. And though that, that, that way, you know, re, really good teachers have to become rebels, have to figure out how to organize to oppose this, you know, uh, these, these standards and guidelines and benchmarks and so on, uh, and the tests to enforce compliance with them uh, in, right. in order to actively ignore or subvert moronic mandates. But at the same time, teachers, hopefully with the support of their building administrators, have to figure out what else works, have to know what else to do instead of just saying, don't make me teach this this curriculum, but how do I work with kids to to create a curriculum that's engaging and meaningful and organized around the kids' own questions and organized around problems and projects, not around lists of skills or content. Yes, and it's and for teachers to think about this, you know, as an administrator, I think about this greatly when I work with my staff. Just like staff don't want me to micromanage them and to be compliance-driven with what they do, we should think the same way with our students. We ultimately have certain goals we're trying to achieve with learning. But a lot of these goals are much bigger than the smaller objectives that we sort of see right in front of us. And ultimately, like you said, with projects and bigger activities, that you can achieve both. And that's sort of my challenge to you a little bit is, is so teachers have these mandates. They have to teach these things. Um, and many times they don't necessarily have to teach them, but kids have to learn certain objectives and be able to prove that later on on some type of standardized test, which we may or may not agree with doing, but there is the reality to that situation that teachers have to do. So what are those things that they can sort of have, you know, sort of two birds, one stone? They can be compliant to the mandates that are there, but they can, if they're allowed to in their school, if they have an administrator, like what I try to do is, is keep it more open-ended with how they do it. But ultimately, that our goal is, you know, the same. But I try not to uh, decide for them or their students how that can be done, so that they have a little more autonomy and ownership with that as well. So, what are those things that they could do to try to achieve that that goal of the objective or the learning, yet still increase more ownership with students and create more interest and in, in meaning in their work? Well, I'm I may be a little more radical than you. <laughs> in that I'm not quite prepared yet to say, well, this is just a fact of life. They're going to have to meet these mandates and then restrict our notion of teacher autonomy and thus ultimately student autonomy to right. the, the, the narrow question of how you go about meeting those mandates. I mean, look, if the mandate is broad and it's something like we want kids to be able to communicate effectively you know, or to think uh, analytically about ideas, make connections and distinctions. Oh, that's fine. If it's that broad, if it's that vague, then that gives us a lot to play with in creating our own curriculums, again, with kids. But if somebody is saying that kids have to know, you know, what Venn diagrams are in fourth grade, or the four stages or five stages of mitosis, or define the words participle and predicate in X grade, that's so inconsistent with what we know to be the best way to help kids learn and to love learning that the question principal should be asking is, how do we resist this mandate? Not, how do I give you a little bit of discretion about how to implement it? So uh, I begin, when I work with 
teachers by asking, what are your long-term goals for your kids? How, how do you hope they'll turn out years right. from now? Right. And I, the answers I get almost everywhere are, are, are overlap to a remarkable degree. First of all, the great majority of answers I get from teachers and administrators are about how to help kids become good people, not just yes. good learners. Correct. We want them to become independent, self-sufficient, caring, compassionate, uh, ethical, happy, and so on. But when people talk about learning-related goals, you know, nobody ever says, my long-term goal is for kids to be able to convert a decimal into a fraction uh, or to, to know the difference between a simile and a metaphor. Right. People say, we want kids to be lifelong learners, to be curious, critical thinkers, creative, and so on. And then we work backwards from there and we say, okay, Let's talk about the idea that kids have to memorize a formula for long division so they can do well on a, on a standardized test. Does that promote your own goals for your kids, intellectual development? Is it irrelevant to them? Or does it actually undermine the goals of becoming lifelong learners and thinkers and so on? And if it's the last of those that it undermines those goals, then we cannot in good conscience teach a bad curriculum. You know? Right. And on the short run, we have to figure out how to minimize the damage of those mandates by ignoring as many of them as we can get away with. And in the long run, simultaneously, we have to organize and mobilize to change them. And this is the key point. That curriculum that's set down from the state capitol or the district office is not like the weather. It's not a fact of life. These are political decisions that can be questioned and ultimately rolled back. Now, if I'm creating a curriculum with my group of kids, which, by the way, if I'm teaching fifth grade, you know, the curriculum I have this year will not be the same as the curriculum I had last year or the same as the curriculum in the other fifth grade class down the hall, because these are different kids. Correct. You know? Yep. So uh, based on their questions, and who they are and what they know and what they want to know, together we create a project-based, interdisciplinary, student-centered curriculum. Now, if once we're doing that, we discover, oh, look at that, a point of overlap with the state standards, great, cover your ass, point to that. But you don't start with the standards. You start with the kids' questions. And then after the fact, do what you can to... um, draw those connections and say, you know, actually, this, what we did in this, in this process uh, with uh, the experiment that the kids designed with animal habitats turned out to help them understand such and such that some big shot far away decided kids should know. So, yeah, we did that. But the important thing is to begin with, make the point of reference, the center of gravity, is the kids' questions and the unique curriculum created with them. Powerful, powerful words. I mean, it really comes down to behavior and engagement in the learning process. It's really just a matter of interest. So many times these kids are just bored. They don't care. And you're right. We're, we're forcing things upon them that none of us would just want to learn about. And even the most challenging kids, somehow magically, when they're interested in something later in life, they can focus really well on that. You know, and, and yet we blame them when they don't focus on the stuff that we tell them to focus on. You know, because yeah. I keep coming down to this. To me, engagement matters more than anything. If kids are actively trying to learn something, they will always be better in life in the long run. We did exactly what you talked about as a school. We we asked 
all of our families and our staff, what do you want from our students by the time they leave our school? It took me like a year to put all this together. It's like almost my own mini research study. But to your point, exactly what they came back was uh, five values that the students end up voting on themselves to create us these five values, which is our school vision, if you want to call it that way, which is uh, creative, hardworking, safe, fun, and kind. Big values in life. Like you said, they weren't concerned with can they, you know, do they know rounding to the 10th place or something like that. That's not a big concern with families. What they want to know is will my child be a good person and will they be productive as an adult and have a good family? Like Those are big mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. And so many of our objectives have really nothing to do with that in their lives. So this idea yeah. of sort of working past that and being more radical, I think there is room for that in education to be more radical. Uh, but it's a challenge that people don't feel like they can. That's true. They often, and I find that a lot of teachers sort of self-censor. They stop themselves from doing good things or force themselves for, to do bad things beyond what actually, you know, would put their jobs in jeopardy. You know, and obviously it, it's not a one-size-fits-all recommendation. It depends on, you know, who your principal is and whether he or she has your back and agrees with you about some other stuff and, or at least is open to research and, and so on. But, um, there may we may need to draw some distinctions here because sometimes words are tossed around which have different meanings for different people. Like I love the word engagement too, but these days often some people are using it to mean really compliant. Right, that's a great point. Yes, absolutely. And similarly, when we talk about kids being being motivated, you know, the question is what kind of motivation is it? Right. Is it is uh, intrinsic motivation, which means you find it meaningful in its own right? Or is it extrinsically motivated, uh, which means you do something in order for something outside of or extrinsic to the task to happen, like to get a reward or some recognition? And that's really important. I mean, when I toss around the word radical, I'm mindful of the Latin root of the word radical, which is root, (laughs) the root questions. So you'll never catch me asking, how much homework should we give kids right. in seventh grade? Right. You will, I will be asking the question, why would we ever make kids work a second shift right. after a full day in school, right. given that no research has found any benefit to any kind of homework before kids are in high school? And newer research even calls into question whether it's really needed in high school. Similarly, you won't catch me asking whether our grades should be online, you know, or whether they should be standards-based grading, which is, you know, something. I didn't really understand the term putting lipstick on a pig until I started reading about standards-based grading. The (laughs) radical question, the one justified by the research is, given the fundamentally... Um, destructive effects of any grades, any time you put a letter or number on something a kid has done. You make that kid a little less interested in learning. You make that kid think in a more superficial way, and you make the kid try to get the easiest possible task in order to maximize the grade. Those are the three major findings of the research of any kind of grade. So the only question to ask as a faculty is, how do we get rid of grades? Not which kind do we do, and similarly for homework and other stuff. Or I'll give you another example. You will never catch me talking about how do you improve kids' behavior. Never mind that it fudges the question of what do you mean by improvement and who gets to decide. To focus on behavior 
is to look at only the observable, measurable actions on the surface. The more times you see the word behavior in a resource for teachers, the less valuable it probably is, because you're missing the reasons and values and motives that underlie the behavior, the experience for the kid, by looking at only the stuff. And as soon as you start talking about behaviors, you're probably going to resort to some version of bribes or threats, because that's how we tend to you know, talk about increasing or decreasing a behavior. I want to see that word gone so that we're looking at the child's experience, the stuff that's under the surface. So these are all different interlocking, related, but also distinct questions about how to help kids become good people that require us to push back on the terminology as well as the practices that we're encouraged to take for granted. Absolutely. And so much of that has to do with what the kids are observing us do on a regular basis. And if we're in a very compliance-driven, control-based yeah. educational system, that's what they find as a new norm, how they grow up, and that's how they're going to treat other people. We want them to be yeah. kind and, and you know, as adults to think of others and, and think of the greater good, but is that what we're doing in education? In, in Beyond Discipline, you really bring up the idea of building community and working together mm -hmm. to solve problems. And I couldn't agree more. You know, this idea of helping kids and both kids and adults feel physically and psychologically safe and that we develop all this through relationships, you know, but that's a yeah. challenge. And, you know, something as a, as a school leader, I really think of how, you know, one of the best compliments we get in a school is that it feels different. It feels like just right and good and happy and positive and, and we still get great results, but I think those are very interrelated. I think when people feel safe and they feel like we're all there to support each other, that can have a massive impact on even the most struggling kids. So many times we, we forget sort of the forest through the trees. We, we forget about the greater whole of the organization that we're trying to put together and how that influences children because it's social learning. You know, they see what we do and they imitate what we do. And we just sort of dismiss the fact that are we nice to each other? Are we modeling these things? And are we living this way? And are we giving them more control? And are we having them invested as student leaders into their school to create more ownership on their end? Because right. instead of just talking about the individual student, you know, we get so caught up in that individual student and we focus on that, like you said, the behavior, that you end up like getting more of what you focus on. So you almost see more behavior problems when you focus on that. So how can we think more in that community mindset and sort of get out of that individual situation? Well, we want to help kids experience an us. It's not just about me. And so we would minimize the evaluation of kids individually as, you know, as if they were stranded on their own separate desks and responsible only for themselves. So from the very first day of each school year, we, we have class meetings in which kids make decisions together about what kind of classroom we want to have and how we're going to reach that, and then periodic meetings to see how it's going and figure out how we can create a place that's safe. What do we want in here? You know, what do we, how do we want our classrooms to feel? That's, that's not a question for teachers to answer uh, on their own and then impose their suggestions unilaterally. It's, I mean, the best teachers do a lot more asking than talking, and they ask questions where they're not sure what the answer will be. It's not about trying to get the, their own answers to come out of the kid's mouth. That's not choice. That's ventriloquism. You know, the, the, the kids learn how to make good decisions 
by making decisions, not, <laughs> right. not, by, right. not by following directions. Right. And all of us get caught up in, you know, trying to be efficient, and we want to get our curriculum done and get our goals met and hurry things along. But, you know, when you have kids together making decisions, not just individual choices, when you have choice plus community, you have something we rarely experience in this country called democracy. And it's very, very powerful. And it goes beyond voting, which is just adversarial majoritarianism. Now, if you just take a vote, 17 kids want to study this, 11 kids want to study that. You've got 11 kids who just told you they're not interested in this or are forced to do it anyway. It's about winning. It's not about listening. It's not about hashing out consensus or figuring out a compromise or listening to what other people want. Plus, there are all these activities that can be done that aren't just about academics that help to create those bonds, that sense of a caring community uh, where, where kids are constantly with each other, doing stuff, listening to each other, offering suggestions, deciding together on, uh, on who's in our class and how we can help other people solve problems. Um, this is all very different, very unfamiliar, alien in a profoundly hyper-individualistic culture. I mean, my God, look around us now. We've got, we've got people who are using the banner of freedom or liberty, you know, to, to say, I don't have to give a crap about anybody else. Why should I wear a mask, you know, or get a vaccine? Because, I mean, it's just like the United States is a pathological outlier in the world with our sense of it's only about me. It's not about any kind of responsibility to or commitment to a larger community. So the best way to head that off to to raise a healthier generation, which isn't to say to wipe out individual issues by any means. I don't want some sort of faceless, scary, dystopian collective. That's a false dichotomy. But to have strong individuals in a strong web of care is something that can happen in classrooms where we're, we're learning and making decisions and sharing news and coming together around a whole range of issues, uh, and ideally doing that right up through high school, which also raises questions about the departmentalization and many, many other things. But there's so many powerful pilot examples of this that I've had the good fortune to watch around the country where you get that, where kids are the center of gravity, as John Dewey says, you know, their, their decisions, their needs, their interests. But at the same time, it's not just a bunch of individual kids. It's, it's about a community of learners. Absolutely. You know, you talk about relationships, ownership, choice, community, this big picture idea, you know, and really adapting to the student. We have them adapt to so much of what we do, but then when they get to be an adult, they can sort of do whatever they want to a certain degree. You can take all, you can be a rock climber, you can do anything you want, but in education, you have to be a good student to be successful. And that frustrates me as a, as a parent with a child with a disability and, and yep. all these all these kids that struggle, it's not their fault. You know, and I, I, I my line is that sometimes a student doesn't need to adapt to the school, sometimes the school needs to adapt to the student you know what can we do to adjust our educational system or what you call the environment this this environment around them to be more suitable to help them make as much progress as they can um, and be as you know focused on their next step as they can yep absolutely 
people I think are absolutely radical, but I love it. That's how we should be. We should be that progressive, and our, our actions and our work in our schools should match our rhetoric out there. And just like you said, there's so many of us that like to be bold and be progressive. But my challenge to all of you is, are we truly doing those things? You know, like Alfie said, are we really truly being radical? Are we truly being progressive? Or are we just doing the same old thing and putting maybe lipstick on a pig here? So thank you, Alfie, for coming on. I can't thank you enough. My pleasure. Thanks for your interest. That's a wrap for this episode. Thank you so much to Alfie Cohn for sharing his work on education and discipline and behavior management. It's just absolutely profound. If you like what you heard, please consider liking, sharing, and leaving a positive review so that I know how you feel about this episode's topic and really the podcast as a whole. The work we do for our schools is tough, but you are tougher. More importantly, we are even stronger when we work together. On that note, have a great week.